creating the soundtrack to a movie by Steven Spielberg that most of you have heard of by the name of Schindler's List. And he felt the weight of that, and he looked over to Steven Spielberg, and he said, you really need a better composer than me. And Steven Spielberg looked at him and said, you know, you're right, but they're all dead, so you'll have to do. And so I think every preacher can kind of feel like that. Somebody is better at this than me, but uh, the privilege is as great as a responsibility to be with you this afternoon, so I want to I want to confess that before you this morning and just let you know that it's a joy to be here. And I consider it a great privilege, honor, and responsibility to share God's word with you all. So let's bow in prayer and ask that the Lord will bless our time this morning. Father, we come before you as your children, and we just thank you for the grace that you've shown us. And we ask that you would continue to show it this afternoon and teaching us from your word that the spirit of truth would enlighten our minds and our hearts and affect our lives to the end of being conformed to the image of your Son. You've saved us to that purpose, and we want to come under the means of that this afternoon by hearing from you in your word. And would you help us to understand and to receive the things that you provided for us in your word. In your Son's name I pray, amen. So Second Peter chapter 1, I'd like to begin by reading... Verses 16 through 21, that's pretty much where we'll focus and, and gain our, our topic, if you will, this morning. Very similar to what Jonathan hit on this morning, I don't know of anything better that I could commend God's people to than to God himself. And that is to direct your hearts, your minds, your lives to your God. And the best way that I can do that is to turn your minds and your hearts and commend you to his word, his abiding everlasting word. While you're in 2 Peter, you don't have to turn there uh, to John, but I'm going to read a verse from John, somewhat of, of a parallel to what um, was read in the scripture reading this morning, John 14, 17. Jesus says these words when he's telling them that he's going to leave and he won't leave them as orphans, but he'll send them the Holy Spirit that he calls the Spirit of Truth. Verse 17, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. In John chapter 14, a few verses ahead, in 1426, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And uh, that is the spirit of God, the spirit of truth, which yields the word of God that we have. Um, Y'all are very familiar with it. We'll read it in this text. But men wrote, moved by God's spirit. Their words were the words of God. And so as we read this, as our study uh, this afternoon will be in Second Peter, I want that to be in your minds that we're looking to conform our minds to the mind of God. And we do that by turning our hearts and minds to his word. So let's read 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises, rises in your hearts, 
knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In case you're not familiar with this letter, the theme of Peter's letter is very defensive. It's very polemic. He's dealing with what Jude was dealing with, false teachers. And in this letter, you'll find that a common theme that Peter deals with is knowledge, that word knowledge. He starts it and he ends the letter with knowledge. And if you glance one chapter back, he says in chapter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And if you uh, turn over to the very last chapter, he closes up the letter with a very similar theme. After all I've said, after all you're aware of, after all the warnings, after all the exhortations, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in just three short chapters, Peter mentions the word knowledge in one form or another 16 times. So that ought to get our attention that that's his purpose in this letter. He wants us to be aware that this is important, the knowledge of God. And so with that in mind and with the section that we read, uh, it's apparent that Christians are exhorted to pay attention to the scriptures. Um, that is to devote themselves to knowing, understanding, and applying them to their lives. And that's, that's no small task, right? You know that. And nor is it a light matter when it comes to the consequences of choosing to neglect that exhortation. And so Peter brings this exhortation to bear in a context that was very pivotal in the life of these Christians. They were dealing with false teachers within the church. It wasn't like the Mormons or the JWs. These were people who were in their midst in the church. And so they were being assaulted by the false teachers, and Peter warns them about the false teachers, and then he offers them the primary defense against the false teachers, which is knowledge of God, the Scriptures. Um, and that's what he refers to them in our section, the Scriptures. But kind of to digress from that main theme, the fact of the matter is that whether we have a felt sense of any danger or need to defend the faith, or whether we feel as though the threats are minimal and we're living in good times, the exhortation stands. We are to be devoted to the Scriptures, the Word of God. Paul said in Colossians 3.16, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now that's aside from any felt need to defend or contend for the faith. And the fact is that the threats will always be there, but my point is that the desire to be devoted to the scriptures should not come primarily based on, on whether or not we feel threatened or not or whether or not there's falsehood, but it should come primarily from our desire to obey God and his word. Peter also said in his first letter, 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that is the word of God, so that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, Peter exhorts them in the first letter as he's doing in the second letter. And so my desire today is for us to hear Peter's argument for why we should be devoted to the Scriptures within the context of 2 Peter. Um, I don't want to take this and just make it a topical message, which is okay, but I want you to feel the force of Peter's argument because he has a very compelling and surprising argument in this letter that should move us to say, wow, that is pretty remarkable for Peter to say that. I ought to be motivated to devote myself to the scriptures. 
And so we'll spend some time looking at this section. I have five headings that hopefully will guide our study this morning. This is going to be partial preaching, partial, partial study, partial exhortation. I'm going to ask you to please bear with me and make it a point to, to, to give it all you have to think through these texts with me. Because I, I really believe in my heart that as Christians observe God's word and it clicks in their hearts and minds, it is one of the most rewarding things to know that you have heard from God. And it's by means of understanding his word. So these five headings we'll be looking at, I'm going I'm to try and compact this as much as I can because I really want to explain these verses and not just say, okay, Peter says we should pay attention. I want you to know the setting, the, the, the purpose behind why he decided to do that. It's very compelling. So we're going to first look at the occasion. Number one, the occasion. What, what's going on here? This didn't just happen out of nowhere. There were real circumstances going on here in the church. And then after that, we'll look at number two, Peter's response. Something happens that prompts Peter to say these things. Three, we'll look at the account. Peter brings up an event in his life that's very significant. And then fourth, we'll, we'll figure out what does he mean by that. And then fifthly, we'll, we'll look at the more sure word, which is the scriptures we hold in our hands. And I know that's a lot, but I'll repeat that. And also, I just want you to bear with me as we really try to understand this section, okay? All right, so, so first, what, what's the occasion? What, what's going on here? Well, Peter and the other apostles were apparently being charged by the heretics in chapter 2. All of chapter 2 of 2 Peter is devoted to exposing the conduct of false teachers. Um, Peter doesn't really go into detail as far as what they were teaching per se, but he gives the fruit of their life and says, this is what false teachers yield. And so that's what's happening here. These false teachers are accusing Peter and the other apostles of preaching what he calls in the verse a devised myth as their message. And to be more specific, in Peter's letter, the charge had to do with the second coming of Christ. Glance over to chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Peter says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. What will they say? What's their scoffing? Look at verse 4. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So whether Christ was going to return or not, His imminent promised return was in question. The false teachers were basically saying it's not true to some extent or the other. And that was being said that Peter was propagating. It's just a myth. It's just a falsehood. Now, to understand the gravity of this and how it fit into Peter's time, they didn't have what we have. They didn't have 2,000 years of even the good science. There's a lot of falsehood called science. But even the good science, they didn't have that. None of that developed. So they were trying to figure out everything around them in their world and their relationships. And what did they turn to? Well, they turned to false religions and myths. The ancient world was bombarded with myths that were concoctions of men who were trying to understand things that they couldn't, but they were things that they couldn't even avoid either. And so the word was pretty much synonymous with an invention. I'm seeing something in nature or in my life. I don't understand it. Let me invent something that gives cause to that or gives reason for that. Paul used this word in other places. He told Timothy not to devote himself to myths. He told uh, Titus to rebuke those who were devoting themselves to myths. So myths for Christians in the biblical times weren't something that they were unaware of. It was very common. And um, 
like I said, everything from the earth, morality, even theology, all of it was sought to be reasoned by way of these myths. And some of them were interesting. Some of them were just outright bizarre, and you would hear them and you would laugh. They would sound like modern-day evolution is pretty much what they would sound like. How many of you are familiar with any of those myths? Raise your hand if you've ever heard of, of Greek myths that sought to reason away. Um, there's one. How many of you are familiar with the, uh, the Greek myth of Demeter and her daughter? Anyone? Well, it's, it's sought to basically explain seasons, and it involved a woman who was a goddess who came down, robbed a child, um, put him in a fire. The child gets taken back. Somebody eats a pomegranate seed, and they have to return away from their parent, and the parent weeps and therefore turns their heat away from the earth, and then we get winter. Just very bizarre, really good sci-fi-worthy movies, but just bizarre myths. That was a real one, and that was something that was used to explain something as seemingly um, unimportant as the seasons. So that's, that's pretty much the climate that Peter's in. He was being accused of creating things like that. And they were saying, well, this return of Christ that you're talking about, it's not really going to happen. It's a myth. It's like that one that I just mentioned. And so they were... They were saying Peter and the apostles are doing that. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about when he says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't. And what's his response? He doesn't just say like a child, no, I did not. Yes, you did. No, I did not. Y'all haven't. No parents have heard that, right? No parents have ever heard that. So Peter's response is a lot more potent than that. So what's his response? Look at the verse about midway through 16, we are towards the end, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesties, of his majesty. So that, that's the response to this occasional accusation that, you know what, Peter, you just have this made up fable. It's not real. It's false. It's just like all the other myths. Peter says, no, we were eyewitnesses. And that really should make us understand that when Peter and the other apostles spoke concerning the things that had happened in the gospel accounts, they were speaking with the qualification that they were eyewitnesses of what took place. That's Peter's defending response. In other words, Peter would say, you say that we made this up, but we were there. We saw firsthand. We didn't even get a good secondhand reliable account. We saw it firsthand. John said something similar in First, in, in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Peter and John and the other apostles could say, we saw Christ. We beheld him physically. And that's basically the same thing Peter's saying. I've seen what I speak of. I've actually heard firsthand what I have made known to you. I've heard it myself. And the word that Peter uses for eyewitness is no small definition of a term either. And I think it's important because it, it's not just somebody making a claim and saying, I'm a witness like we would think in a court of law. The word that he uses for witness was the same word that was used as one who was initiated into a religion by way of observation. So again, going back into what Peter's hearers would have understood, there was no shortage of religions. And these religions, they basically had these plays that would take place. But not everybody could go to these plays. They were very cultish, like we would know, and they involved these plays 
that only certain people could be invited to. You had to be groomed. You had to be taught. And so what would happen at these plays is that the play of the, of the deity would be worked out in front of them. The whole setup was there. And if you got to attend this play, you were an eyewitness, or in the Greek, an epoptes. Basically, you were initiated. You saw firsthand this play, and now you were more closely knitted with that God, and now you were an initiated one. You were close. You were in the inner circle. Now, Peter's not talking about a false God, but he's using terminology that they would have understood. It's a dramatic claim that the apostles could all make, saying the effect that you would need to be as close as you could to God and touch and feel and hear and have this experience, we have it. And that's what we've shared with you. These are the things that we've shared with you. Real life events that we've touched and seen and heard. We're not making it up, nor are we just passing along truthful information. We're the first-hand witnesses of all that had happened. And so Peter's making a very strong claim to the highest degree that he could, saying we were the greatest witnesses of Christ. And so how can you question someone who was there when someone who wasn't there says that's a myth? You can't. How can the false teachers compete with this? The answer is they can't. They weren't there like Peter, like John, like Paul. Paul having been visited by Christ on several accounts. And they can't compete with that because they weren't there. But here, here's the next question, and this gets us into our third point, the account. Where is there? Where is the place that Peter's talking about? Do you see it in the verse? He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Look at verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So where is there? There is the mountain, but what mountain specifically? What, what's the account that Peter's talking about? What account comes to your mind? The Mount of Transfiguration, and that's the account. Now, Peter is using this experience not just to say, I'm a witness, which is sufficient, but he ties it into the importance of the scriptures. And that's what I really want us to be focusing on when we get finished, seeing the purpose behind why would Peter use this account? It almost seems bizarre until you look into it and see the magnitude of what Peter is saying. And I'm hoping by the end of this, it drives us to the scriptures and take heed to Peter's astounding claim that there's something better even than what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration that you and I have total access to anytime. That's the claim. So what, what's the account? You said it, the Mount of Transfiguration. That's the specific event that Peter is saying he was an eyewitness of. So I want you to hold your spot in 2 Peter and turn with me to Matthew 17, and let's read that account. This is the account that Peter has in mind when he says he was an eyewitness of the things that he is speaking of. Matthew 17, beginning in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. That's an understatement, right? Probably a, a, the greatest understatement ever. It is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And we'll stop reading there. There's the account. Peter was there, and as mentioned, so were James and John. This is the, the account that Peter is holding up as a defense to the false teachers who would say the return of Christ is not true. The heretics, that was the main charge, as we read in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. I'm reading again what we read earlier. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Some take this to mean Christ's first coming. When Peter says, We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people think that Peter's saying, um, we were alive when he was born. We were here when, when he came the first time. But do the words Peter uses to describe Christ, do they really describe Christ's first coming? That's, that's a question we have to ask. It's a good question. Did he come in power the first time? Did he come with any majesty? Did he come with any glory and splendor? The words power and coming have to do with the return of his second coming, more than likely. In Matthew 24, 30, it says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And then they will see the man, Son of Man coming, there's the same word, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 26, the same words are used by Jesus. You have said so, but I tell you from now on. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So the words coming and power are oftentimes used when Christ is talking about his second return, not his first. So what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, you can believe what I'm saying because I was an eyewitness of it. But do you see the, the enormous question that, begin, that begins to arise? Peter is saying that we were eyewitnesses when he came with power and glory. He's talking about the transfiguration. But then he uses that account to defend Christ's second coming, which will also be accompanied by great power and glory. Now, here's the question. How can Peter say that and not be taking it too far? How can Peter be an eyewitness of something that hasn't happened yet? Christ hasn't returned yet, has he? Well, Peter's not saying that Christ has already returned, right? We know that Peter wouldn't be saying that. But here's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that you can believe what I've said about the second coming of Christ because I've seen it in preview form. Now, what do I mean by that? This is the whole meaning behind why Peter uses this event and why it's his defense when the false teachers say there is no second coming. Christ isn't coming back. Now, why would Peter use this event and experience in response to that? What is it that makes the promised return of Jesus Christ undeniable for Peter based on this account? Well, 
and with Matthew 17 in front of you, look at the details concerning Christ in this account. Look at verse 2. It says that he was transfigured before them. What does that word mean? Well, it's, it's where we get our English word for metamorphosis, like when a butterfly turns in, um, excuse me, a caterpillar, rather, turns into a butterfly. It means to change, to, to change into another form or to transform or to transfigure, like we say this account is. Now, what about Jesus changed? What about him? His, his appearance, right? It says there in John, um, excuse me, Matthew 17, that his physical face shone so bright that Matthew said it was like the sun and his clothes were as bright as light. And so what was happening on the mount? What was going on? What did they see? What were they witnesses of? Now, let, re- let me remind you again uh, regarding the question, did Christ come the first time with any glory? Let me read you what Isaiah said about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 53. Isaiah said he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's how Christ came the first time. And then Paul said in Philippians 2 that he what? He emptied himself. He emptied himself of all that majesty by taking the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men. So again, let me stress, when Jesus came the first time, there was no glory, there was no splendor, there was no radiance, no beauty, no majesty. It was imperceivable that he was the Son of God. And so what was going on here on this Mount of Transfiguration? Well, the the veil was pulled back, the veil of his humanity. Like the author of Hebrews says that the veil was what? We enter through the veil, which is his what? His flesh. The veil of his humanity and his flesh on the Mount of Transfiguration was pulled back, and these three disciples were able to see the radiant glory of his deity, of his godness on the mountain. And I would compare it to like a stained glass in one of those beautiful cathedrals. Nobody would deny that those are, those are really pretty and beautiful, especially when the sun hits them, they shine really bright. And I would imagine that as a man, Jesus had perfect graces. He never sinned once. And the disciples saw that all the time. They were witnesses of that. So there was a beauty in the sense of they viewed his perfection, but they never got to see what was on the other side of that stained glass. And so on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens is that glass breaks and they're able to see the bare sun in front of them as he truly is in glory. That's what happened on the mountain. Christ's veil of his flesh removed, and you have this transfiguration happening before Peter, James, and John. And so in our account in Matthew 17, Peter does what Peter does. He speaks, he talks. And he says, and what he says rather should be a giveaway of what Peter initially perceived was going on here by his words. What what does he say? If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. This is it. This is all we need. We got Moses here. He gave us the law. We got Elijah, he kept the law, he guarded it, and now we have the Messiah. Let's just make this happen and stay here. It's done, right? But that's not what happens, right? That didn't happen. In Luke's account, it adds not knowing what he said. So poor Peter gets to be remembered throughout eternity as the one who spoke without knowing, so we can identify with him. 
he didn't know what he was saying. He was speaking out of ignorance and probably out of shock at what he was, what he was seeing. And so he says, I see this. This is the kingdom. The Messiah is here. Moses is here. Elijah is here. Let's set this up and be done. But that's not what happened. So what, what was happening? Why wouldn't they think that? Did they have a good reason to think that? Well, here's another interesting thing. I think they had reason to think that based on what happened right before this. Look what happens in Matthew 16, 28. Read that verse with me. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now flip quickly over to Mark chapter 9, which is the same account. I want you to look at something with me and tell me what it looks like to you. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. The same account. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. What follows that in your Bible? What heading? Okay, now turn with me one more time to Luke chapter 9. This is the last account. Luke chapter 9, verse 27. The words of Christ again. But I tell you, truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And what comes right after that again? So here's, here's a question to ask. Could it be that Jesus Christ was giving these disciples a glimpse of what that final day would look like as a preview and also at the same time fulfilling His word that He gave to all of them in all three Gospels. I guess the bigger question is, how else could what He said be fulfilled? Somebody would have to be over 2,000 years old and alive today, and Christ come back today for that to be fulfilled, right? That being the case. Not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power and not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So what is the meaning? What's, what's the meaning of this account? Well, turn back with me to Second Peter. And let's see how Peter uses this event in his life to validate the truthfulness of what he has said, his claim about Christ returning. Look at Second Peter, verse 16. Again, he says, We were eyewitnesses of His glory eyewitnesses of his second coming glory that he said we would see before we die, and it's the same glory that he will display when he comes on that final day. That's the argument. There's glory coming at Christ's second return. We've seen it, and we will see it again. That's the argument. Don't believe what they say. They have no credibility. They weren't there. We were there. We've seen the glory that's coming. It was a preview of what's to come that he experienced. And so what's, what, what's, what's going on? Why, why does that tie into the scriptures? How is this going to be turned into Peter directing these Christians to not only don't believe the false teachers, they weren't witnesses, we are. How does he get into our responsibility to devote ourselves to the scriptures and to be turned to the scriptures? Well, look what he says. Look at what he says in verse 19. And we have 
the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The way verse 19 ought to read is more like this. And we have as more sure the prophetic word. That makes a huge difference. Now, what is Peter saying? Because whatever he's saying, it's pretty amazing and astounding when you consider it all that we've looked at, considering Peter's experience. That was the greatest experience not only of his life, but it pales in comparison to whatever experience you and I might have. But look at what Peter does to it. He says, and we have as more sure the prophetic word. More sure than what, Peter? More sure than my experience on the transfiguration. That, to me, I wouldn't believe a claim like that if it wasn't in the Scriptures. How can you say that the Scriptures are more sure a foundation than your experience? Well, I think Peter knew a lot about experience. Looking at his own life, that his life wasn't filled with the best of experiences. But not only that, you can't recreate an experience. You can't, sometimes you can't even validate an experience. But what's so sure, more sure of the prophetic word, the scriptures? They're the same forevermore. And so the meaning of the prophetic word that he later refers to as scripture is more sure, that's more firm than even what he has experienced. That's his argument, and that's how he ties it into all that he's defending against falsehoods with those saying Christ wouldn't return. And that's a very weighty statement. Again, he's saying all that we saw and witnessed in Matthew 17, all that he experienced, the prophetic word, the scriptures are more firm. In other words, all inspired, God-breathed scripture is more firm to you and I than anyone's experience, even Peter's experience. Anyone who has an experience, it it can't be weighed against Scripture and be heavier. And that's why he follows that statement with this one. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The more prophetic word, the Scriptures, you'll do well to pay attention to them. In other words, you're living in a world that is dark and the only light you have is this lamp. What is the lamp? What is the lamp he's referring to? Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's the lamp that Peter's talking about. That's the lamp he's referring to, the word of God. And he's telling them to pay attention. Again, the the climate is the same as Jews. There's a reason to pay attention. There's a threat. Pay attention. When When we ask someone to pay attention... We assume attention is being given when we have eye contact or even if we just have their their front. I mean, if somebody is not really giving eye contact, we assume attention is being given. Is that what Peter means? Just look at me or just just look at the man speaking. Just, Just look in the right way. Well, the word for pay attention actually means a lot more than that. It can mean to be given to or addicted to. It can mean to apply oneself to attach oneself to, hold or cleave to a person or thing. And one of the the best definitions that it has is to devote thought and effort to. Peter is saying devote thought and effort to what I'm telling you is heavier and weightier than my experience of seeing Christ in second coming glory. That 
I don't know about you, but that makes me treasure the Scriptures so much that Peter can say that and be thankful for them. And for how long, Peter? You want me to pay attention. You want me to devote myself to this. You want me to pay careful attention. For how long am I to devote myself to this lamp, this Word of God, this more sure prophetic Word? How long? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's beautiful, but what is the morning star? What does that mean, Peter? What are you telling me? Jesus says in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. There's coming a day when Christ will return and every believer who deals with the failure, the doubt, the sin, the imperfections of our humanity, there's going to be a day when Christ will rise so in our hearts that all that will give way to His radiance and beauty and we will be like Him. And Peter is saying, until that day, devote yourself to this because the morning star will rise, but until then, pay attention. Give yourself to this. Give devoted thought and effort to it. So in short, Peter's saying, pay attention to this word, the Scriptures, until Christ returns. So very quickly, my desire is not only to, to consider this, but I would, I would like to offer maybe a few points on how do we do this? How do we take heed to Peter's word? Whether we feel the threat of false teachers or not, I trust I've convinced you that this isn't just for those in peril and danger and being threatened, which is all of us all the time, but whether we feel it or not, it's, it's not just for that. It's for always and until the morning star rises in your heart. Right, Christian? So how do we do this? How, how do we accomplish this? I'd like to offer some, some answers to that. And I am going to give them in an order that I think are the most important, the most obvious, and in some sense, the easiest. You may feel like as they go on, they get harder, but they're all to be found in Scripture. The first way that we can take heed to Peter's words and devote ourselves, give attention and devoted thought to the more sure word, the Scriptures. The first way is by submitting yourself regularly to the teaching of God's Word within the local church. That's the first way I would advise you that you can devote yourself to God's Word more faithfully. Let me read to you a portion of Ephesians 4. Speaking of Christ, it says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, that's where we get our term pastors or teaching pastors, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now listen, listen to what all that yields. This is the outcome of what Christ has given to you as a Christian through your pastors who teach you, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
that is a huge weight dependent upon whether we submit ourselves to the means that God has provided through the local church's teaching. Now, that doesn't come from me. That comes from God, the Word of Christ. The primary earthly means that God uses to teach you, His people, from His Word, the Bible, is by means of the gifts that He gave to the church when He ascended. Primarily and specifically, pastor-teachers. And so, there's, if you don't realize that, you won't give that means its proper place in your life. You'll minimize the importance of it. But to take heed to Peter's words of being devoted to the Scriptures is going to require some form of understanding and then a measure of effort to be in a place where you're exposed to those means. And it's, it's very easy to be here, isn't it? There's also a very real sense in which every pastor has been given the same responsibility that was given to Peter in John 21. You remember what he told him? What did Jesus tell Peter after every time Peter answered him and said, I do love you? What did he say? Yeah, he said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And so when we place ourselves under the faithful teaching of the Word of God by men who have been given to the church for the task of feeding us and submitting to this means established, not by men, but by Jesus Christ, we're submitting ourselves to the Scriptures. One other thing that I thought was worth mentioning, one of the qualifications of an overseer that... that separates him from the other leadership of the church is what? He must be able to teach, right? So it stands to reason that if this is the qualification that sets him apart in the church, we as members of the church ought to do what? Putting ourselves in the means of being affected by that means that God has provided for us to be devoted to the Scriptures, right? So that's one way. The second way is by personally and privately being devoted and committed to taking in the Scriptures. That's, that's very simple, very basic. Um, Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I want you to notice the singleness of those the pronouns. Blessed is the man. Very specific. How I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So it's not enough to place yourself under the teaching of God's Word. You must be devoted to it yourself, personally, privately, apart from anyone else. That's what these verses are getting at. And the devotion that God seeks from you in His Word is just as personal as the blessings that come from it. In other words, God doesn't indiscriminately bless everyone for one person's, disobedience, one person's obedience, does He? In times in the Scriptures, perhaps a nation was blessed when the king sought Him. But when you come over to the New Testament, typically... What you find is you find the reward and the blessing being reaped by the individual who takes heed to the Word of God, right? And so there's a personal devotion that ought to be in the heart of every believer. Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Not to someone else's mouth or taste, but to mine. The psalmist was very personal with his devotion to the Word of God, and, and we ought to be as well. Thirdly, Another way that we can 
make this happen, this devotion to the Scriptures that's so important is by seeking to understand the Scriptures. This one may be a little bit more difficult, but listen to what Proverbs says. Proverbs 2, it says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. There's an earnestness. There's, there's a, a view of this knowledge of God that's described as silver and gold. It's precious. It has worth. It's valuable. The words of Christ in Matthew 13, 23, listen to the first part of this verse. Jesus says, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and what? And understands it. So just as it's not enough to sit under the word of God, and it's not enough just to take in the word of God yourself, we must do so with the aim of understanding them, of knowing what they mean. Apart from the Spirit of God, we, we can't understand anything given to us in the Scriptures, right? Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 2.10. He says, these things concerning the revelations of God, God has revealed to us through the Spirit, right? So apart from the Holy Spirit's regenerating work, we can't even begin to understand the Word of God because it's a spiritual book that speaks in terms beyond the what the natural person can understand, right? And we, we recognize this in, in attempting to discuss this truth with lost people. We can hit a brick wall, and, and it's merely due to the fact that they're unregenerate, that they can't understand, right? But we're Christians, right? Well, all of us who are Christians would admit that when we were converted, we did not all of a sudden understand everything in this book, right? Or is there somebody that, that did? I, I didn't. We recognize that there's much ground to cover and much more to learn and understand. And so all that to say that although the Bible is supernatural and you need to be regenerate to understand and embrace it, um, and it's far more than any other book in the world, let me tell you that it's no less than any other book in the world. It's no less. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that we ought not approach it mystically. We ought not approach it in a sense where there's cryptic codes or hidden meanings and messages that require us to come to a stage of, of euphoric spiritual ecstasy in, in order to understand it. That's, that's not what God intended. We need to approach the Bible seeking to understand it as the Word of God written to us in a way that is, in fact, comprehensible. It's understandable. God gave it to us that way, and we ought to approach it that way. Not that we can't understand it, but it's written all over the Scriptures. What did John say about one of the most difficult books that we have to understand? Revelation. What did John say? Blessed is he who reads it and what doesn't understand it but comes away confused and with six different views and good debate arguments. No, he said you're blessed if you understand it. God expects us to understand His Word, and that doesn't negate or minimize the fact that there are hard things to say. In this very letter, 2 Peter, he said Paul wrote some difficult things. But we should not take that to mean like we can't understand it. We can and we must. Very quickly, I just want to mention some of the barriers that you may not be familiar with and I think that they're important to address 
Because if we ignore these barriers that prevent us, yes, as believers from understanding the Scriptures, if we ignore them, they pose much greater harm than if we would acknowledge them and work through them. So what are some things that, that can stand in our way as believers that keep us from understanding God's Word? There, there's some obvious barriers. Well, what about time? Time is an obvious barrier. What I mean by that is that we're separated by at least 3,500 years from Genesis and 2,000 years at least from Revelation. Like that's when Moses wrote Genesis, roughly. Like, that's a lot of time. Nobody's here to ask these questions. You can't go up to Paul and say, you know, we've been fighting over this for 80 years. What did you mean? We can't do that. We need to acknowledge that, that we're separated, not only by time, but what, what about space? How many of you grew up in the Middle East? No, none of us. So that poses a bit of a problem because the majority of the problem takes place in the Middle East, Egypt, Southern Mediterranean nations, present-day Europe, Rome, maybe Spain, if Paul went there. How many of y'all lived or are from any of those countries? Okay, so that poses somewhat of an issue because that's where this book was written. That's the setting. So the geographical distance and the unfamiliarity of those places, it can put us at an obvious disadvantage. What about customs and cultures? This one's really important because when you ignore these, you can come up with some really, really interesting things if you don't take them for what they are. How many of y'all took off your shoe and gave it to the lender when you bought your house? If you read Ruth, you might be inclined to do that if you don't acknowledge. You know what? That's probably an ancient custom that we don't do and then dig into the purpose of it. Um, you know, there's physical distance and then there's culture. And like I said, that particular challenge has been seen by some as a reason for some of the most erroneous understandings of Scripture. So if we're going to understand the Scripture, we have to understand that we're not there and they're not here. Uh, we're Westerners. We're Westerners in 2022 at that. What about language and literary genres? If you're unaware of this, the Bible is not written all the same. You have historical narratives, you have poetry, you have literature, you have satire like Jonah, you have the gospel accounts, you have letters that Paul wrote to churches that are a lot easier for us to understand. So if, if we don't acknowledge these, how are we going to take heed and give our minds the fullest attention that God through Peter is exhorting us to do? It'd be very difficult. So how do we practically bridge these gaps and prevent us from, that, that can prevent us from rightly understanding the scriptures? Well, when, when somebody stands up here and they say, you know, this word means this and this word means that, I, I hope and trust you don't think that that man knows all those in his brain, right? I know Tafik wouldn't, wouldn't claim that. I wouldn't either, and I'm sure Jonathan wouldn't either. Um, we just consult the resources. And so for your benefit, if you don't know what these resources are, you can understand the differences in all these gaps if you consult something called the lexicon, which is basically a dictionary, of the grammar and language of this book. Uh, a Bible dictionary can help you decipher what customs mean what and um, commentaries. How many of y'all don't know what a commentary is? Mostly everybody does. She does. Um, I think the best way to view commentaries is to view them as preserved illumination, um, to separate yourself from the ages of saints that God has poured into and illumined their minds and to say we don't need them is one of, in my opinion, one of the, the most flagrant expressions of pride that we can have. And it can sound good, 
to say, I'm going to sit and be taught by God and His Spirit in my room um, with my Bible, and He's going to teach me everything, is to completely deny what He said He would do with His apostles. He told them, the Spirit will guide you into all truth. Don't worry about what you're supposed to say. The Spirit will speak through you. Now, if we make that claim and what we say isn't 100% accurate, we're not being faithful. God has spoken through the apostles, through the disciples, and that's, that's all we have that's 100% truth and valid. And so God working through time and illuminating the hearts of his people to great, better understand that, we have that at our disposal. And so those can be a good help to us. And so lastly, after submitting yourself to the teaching of God's word through the church, after being devoted and committed to taking in the scriptures yourself, and after availing yourself of all that you can to kind of work through everything that separates us from understanding this spiritual book that is a book, what about, what, what do we do at the end? What's, what's, what do you think the last thing I'm going to say is? After you studied, after you've learned, after you devoted yourself to it, apply it. Study, learn, devote yourself to the scriptures to obey them, right? That second half of Matthew 13, 23, I read, but listen to what Jesus said at the end. He indeed bears fruit. So the seed that was sown on soil is the one who understands and what? Bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Psalm 119 verse 4 says, You have commanded your precepts to be, he doesn't say studied diligently, to be kept diligently. We learn what God has said in order to obey our God. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We know that, right? Jesus said in John 14.15, If you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. We, we search these things out so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and grow in our obedience to him. We care about what he has said through his apostles, through his prophets, because we care about what our God has told us. Out of love and obedience for him, we give ourselves to these things. And Peter has made it clear to us how much more in the climate of threat, how much more in the climate where lines are blurred on every moral front do we need to be given, do we need to be devoted to what God has said in order that we might discern, defend, and obey. So I hope this has been some blessing to you. I hope there was good takeaway from understanding. And uh, let's pray that God would bless it for us. Father, we bow before you as your people, thankful that you have spoken to us through your word. And I, I trust that your people have been stirred up to obey it and to seek you out and to know you. Lord, we're thankful for the grace that you offer to us when we fail when we don't live up to the revelation that we have. And so, Lord, would you give courage to our hearts? Uh, would you allow the, the love of Christ to control us and to will us to work for your good pleasure? In Jesus' name, amen.